Hey, what's going on, good people? It's Gardner Douglas, your Oyster Ninja. Uh, I'm here today with uh, someone different. You know, we we usually keep it to oysters, um, but today I got Sean uh, from Montauk uh, Seaweed <laughs> Supply. Uh, we were just laughing because it's it's hard to uh, you know I, I can't read. I can't read. I'm I'm saying everything but Montauk. Um, but yeah, Montauk Seaweed Supply. And uh, what's going on, Sean? What's up, my man? Great to see you. Great to be here on a Friday with the Oyster Ninja. Yeah, my man. So uh, you're you're uh, in Long Island, right? Correct. Yep. We're uh, we're due east of New York City, and uh, we're headquartered in Montauk, New York, which is the very very end of Long Island. The end, they refer to it as. So if you just kept going and hit the point where you couldn't go any further, you're in Montauk. Montauk. Nice, nice, nice. So what else is Montauk known for? Oh, great question. I mean, Montauk uh, has a very long history. The word Montauk originally comes from the Montaukit uh, Native American tribe uh, that was there. And so it's really, though, since colonial times um, and pre-colonial times, it's been a very fishing oriented uh, location. So it sits, if you can imagine, it's a point of land that, that kind of juts out um, and it's the confluence of three bodies of water. So the Atlantic Ocean and the Long Island Sound and the Block Island Sound all meet right off the point there. So mm -hmm. as you know, in, in, uh, in the oceans and the seafood world, anytime you have kind of like bays and oceans and things mixing and coming together like that, it makes for a very interesting, usually uh, fishing scene. So Montauk is currently and has been uh, New York State's largest commercial fishing port um, and I would say that that really is the historical identity of Montauk. It's really known for fishing. Um, but over the last 10 to 20 years, it's really gotten kind of like commercialized and a lot of more high end residential. The identity has changed over the last maybe 20 to 30 years uh, from like a kind of rough and tumble fishing village to now it's really like a glitzy, glamorous, you know, you got a lot of Range Rovers and rich folks driving around. So that makes for interesting scenes at the bar at night, for sure. I could imagine. I could imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll, we'll come back to Montauk, but uh, just tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into the industry. Yeah, great question. So I grew up, um, I start, my parents, you know, tell the story. They're like that you start, I basically um was obsessed and loved fishing from my earliest age that they would have you know they would send me away to basketball camp and I would come home with best best fisherman uh trophy <laughs> and uh and that and so my earliest memories really are fishing in Shinnecock and Hampton Bays which is about 40 miles to uh to the west of Montauk but that's the second largest commercial fishing port in New York State um so it's one of those things um Gardner you know we're like I just loved fish and seafood for as long back as I can remember. I can't really put my finger on a, I mean, I was so young. Like I look at photos and things when I was like three, four, five, six, seven. And all I was doing was fishing and holding fish and, you know, loved seafood. So um, from there, it really just became a quest of, um, you know, I, I just, any spare time or free time I had, I was fishing. A lot of my friends became commercial fishermen. Um, and I love seafood. And I think I got an interesting glimpse and was able to see the marketplace over the 1980s and 90s and into the early 2000s, um, you know, change right before my eyes. So 
that kind of drove me to think like, how can we reconnect? Our, you know, we, we had this big disconnect basically happen with imports and, and things as you've seen. Um, anyone working in the seafood industry knows uh, that the, the previously local conversation kind of turned into an import conversation. Um, and so that drove me to try to find solutions to that. Like, how could we re bring it back to simpler times where like, you know, you knew your local fishermen where you source seafood that was seasonal and that was like local and that was, um, you know, abundant and all those basic things that we had grown up on. So that drove me ultimately to start uh, Long Island's first community supported fishery project, uh, Dock to Dish little over 10-ish years ago. I mean, we were doing that, uh, you know, exercise, like basically um, delivering fresh fish to our friends and family in restaurants. But it, about, about 10 or 11 years ago, somewhere around there, um, we formally launched New York State's first community-supported fishery, which quickly turned into the first restaurant-supported fishery in the country. And then that took off like a rocket ship. We ended up doing restaurants, port of fishery programs in New York, Los Angeles, Washington, DC, down at the salt line with those guys um, and down through Central America. We ended up bringing this model to like Fiji, South Africa, helping people all over the world set up these community supported and restaurants, port of fishery programs. And it really has been just a kind of a magic carpet ride ever since. Do what you love and love what you do, as they say. No doubt. Uh, that's what got me to where I am today. So what does that actually mean? Can you break that down like so Barney style? It doesn't make sense. Like a community supported fishery. fishery. Yeah, yeah. It's I think um, it was new at the time, um, but now there, there's, a, there, there's a number of them existing all over the place. But basically um, community, where we got the idea from was community supported agriculture and a CSA. And what that is, is like, a, a, instead of going to the local market um, or, the, or the shop or the store, you actually go to a farm and, and pay a membership fee up front for a season's worth of, of fresh farm produce. So it's interesting because it's, it's kind of like a radically different model than most Americans are used to in the, in the era of Amazon. Most people are used to just clicking whatever they want on their doorstep the next day. And, and demand is how the whole market kind of runs. In a CSA model, you're at, you surrender your right to ask for anything or demand anything. And you then kind of are at the mercy of what the farmer gives you in your box every week. So the trade-off is you're, you're not able to ask for anything or make any requests. But what you do get is like the most delicious in season perfectly like the flavors are off the charts it's like what the farmer's family would be eating and so once people start to experience that they typically and then it puts you into a synchronized with the seasons and and the rhythm of you know local produce so we saw that model starting to work like in our local neighborhood in amagansett there had been a csa program for almost 30 years and i went i went and met with the farmer, the guy who started, Scott Chasky, and, and asked him, like, do you think this would work for fish? Like, what if we had people sign up for a season of fresh seafood and then they just came? And basically, that's exactly how we did it. They came and picked up their vegetable box at the farm every week. And we had coolers of, of fresh fish fillets there for the members. So they got their veggies and their fish 
in one shot. And the same rules apply. They had to pay in advance. Um, they had to be willing to accept whatever, like a true catch of the day, whatever came off the dock that day, right. which was a real interesting experience for a lot of uh, a lot of folks. When you know we had sea robins, we had a lot. You know, it was it was what was really landing. So they got everything from the you know the hits, striped bass and rockfish, as you guys call it down there. Um, when it was tuna season, we got some tuna steaks in there and stuff, but early in the season, they were getting things like monkfish or, um, you know, stuff that they weren't necessarily that accustomed to. And so it was a big education process, but it also, what, what really changed it all was we had some chefs here in New York, chef Dan Barber at Blue Hill, um, specifically chef Joe Romuto at Nick and Tony's, um, once they got kind of wind of this idea that they could sign up for, you know, basically a membership in the local fishery. That's when Gardner, this, that concept took off like a rocket ship and we moved into wholesale. So we no longer had to do fillets and coolers. We were just running, you know, van, refrigerated van loads of fish straight from the boats directly to the restaurants. And as simple as a concept as that might seem, it was like, radically different than what anyone had been used to because we had over the years become so accustomed to this demand marketplace and sourcing seafood from all over the planet. So the whole goal of either a CSA or a community, a community supported agriculture program or a community supported fishery program is to reduce the chain of custody, like how many people actually touch the good when it goes from, you know, in the course, when it leaves the fisherman's hands or the farmer's hands, how many people are in the chain of custody before it gets to the consumer. We, our whole goal was just to get that down to three. So it was basically just, you know, fisherman, delivery guy, chef, or fisherman, you know, member basically of the cooperative. And yeah, man, it, it was like a totally wild, unexpectedly international success story that, you know, to this day is the hook to cook South Africa. They're still running their programs down there. We, the New York program, the Montauk program here, um, we had to make major adjustments when COVID hit because we had, if you can believe it, like the Google corporation, big New York city corporations that we were, that were members. And once they sent all their employees home, we had to shut the wholesale program down. Right. So, but yeah, that's basically the, how where it was where what happened and where we are now that's pretty cool so like was it like increments i guess like if you pay this much you get this amount of weight this many pounds or exactly okay yep, yep exactly so it would start at an individual level was two pounds of fillets per week family level was four pounds of fillets per week and then restaurant um level started at 50 pounds of whole fish per week but that went all the way up to Google at the end was at like a ton. They were taking 2000. Yeah. They have 7,000 employees on their campus. <laughs> so, so the, you know, they would go through a lot of fish, but um, yeah, it just exactly. It was incremental and, and, and then it grew and expanded. Um, and now the models everywhere. I just got a text a little while ago from our buddy, uh, Captain Hodge out in Santa Barbara. Uh, he, he does a whole doctor's dish program in Los Angeles, Vancouver, like all these harbor towns basically, because the same problems existed all over the place with this disconnect and, and the globalization of seafood. So this little idea that we borrowed from the farmers to try to translate uh, community supported agriculture into fisheries, it was totally an experiment. And we were like, oh, 
we'll see what it, how they say like necessity is the mother of invention or something like that like but it turns out that this was a necessity in many harbor towns all over um dc kicked one off the guys that uh at the saw line have a restaurant sport fishery program going for a couple of years um and they were running they were having all types of fish been running through that place uh you know and the same exact model the chef there kyle bailey yeah. he came out of dan barber's kitchen so okay. he was very he was very accustomed to you know, it's a lot when the chefs don't aren't able to demand or tell you what they want and they have to just be willing to whatever's coming to the door that keeps them on their toes. They have to be like, you know, spontaneous and coming up a lot of times out of their comfort zone and, and figuring things out on the fly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It keeps them very sharp. Yeah. That's what's up, man. Uh, I got the ball rolling down. I'm, I'm thinking I may make something. Yeah. Happen. You can do it with oysters too. We've seen oyster community, uh, community supported oyster farms programs yeah. like that, where people sign up for a season and then you hand select the best of the best, and then they they trust. You know, it's a lot of it's really trust bonds, reestablishing, um, you know, trust bonds in the chain of custody that mm-hmm. really don't exist uh, elsewhere. But you could do it if you're interested. We'd be happy to help you out. I mean, we got a lot of experience doing community supported fishery work. I like the way you talk, man. Uh, I got to ask you a question, man. This is, I just, I didn't have this question wrote down, but it is hitting me now since, you know, you was talking about the fisheries and stuff, man. Did you watch Sea Spiracy? Yes, I saw it. I saw it. Okay. That was, All right. So, so I, I was, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think, you know, I have to, I always look at the source, right? Like where is this information coming from? And I had already seen Cowspiracy. Uh-huh. Uh, like the 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 first you know part one of that uh and it's a bunch of like vegan activists who are you know who don't think people should be eating any beef or pork or chicken or fish um and so i thought there was little sparks of truth in there but i got I immediately was like this is a very manipulated story and like then as i continued to watch these spheres i was like okay this is pretty much propaganda for a full on, which I think was really unfortunate, you know, because the realities of the world are really different than what, um, than what Seaspiracy presented. And, you know, I think over a billion people on the planet right now rely on seafood as their primary source of, um, of protein. So I think once again, you know, like we were talking about earlier, um, just about, you know, who can afford um, certain things. Ha- being a vegan is really expensive. Like, you know, and in, in the U.S., I think where Seaspiracy was made with United States filmmakers and an American mentality, um, you know, it very much, I think, casts shame on people, small scale community fisheries around the world who, you know, it, 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 it shined a bright light on the worst of the worst of these big industrial fisheries and like, you know, the and maybe these black market illegal things that go on. Um, but that's not representative of the whole. Um, so I thought it was a really biased and manipulated uh, two thumbs down on Seaspiracy <laughs> is, was my, my feeling. But right. what'd you think? Um, so yeah, I'm in the same boat. Uh, my thing was, the, you know, they basically were telling people don't eat fish, you know? Don't eat fish, cut it out. You know, it's not it's not good enough to um, just go sustainable or 
what we think is a sustainable, reliable source. You can't trust those people. Don't eat fish. You know, so I'm like, you know, it's, it's no way I could, you know, stand behind it because, you know, I'm from the Eastern Shore, you know, so I grew up on fish. It's no way I can give up seafood, period, anyway. It's, it's just not possible. Um, again, they made some good points, like, you know, as far as like the um, the trash, you know, uh, the big trash in the, uh, um, the ocean. Pacific, yeah. Right. Um, uh, of course, you know, doing the whole uh, sharks and dolphins. They made good points, um, but you, you can't just not eat seafood. You can't just not eat fish. Um, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think that was the goal to scare people away from eating fish or, or seafood whatsoever. And that's right. just, yeah, it's not a reality for people living on, on the planet Earth. And that was just like that other show on Netflix. Um, I don't know, it had people going vegan for a while. Like, I forgot what it was called, but um, I don't know, I guess it was, it was like saying everything bad that meat does to your body and a whole bunch of other stuff. I don't remember what it was called, but I remember like once people saw it, they was like, I didn't watch it, but my wife watched and she went vegan for a couple of weeks, you know, so, you know. Yeah, it has an impact. It, definitely <laughs> has, it has an impact. Movies right. like that can leave a lasting um, impression on people. And like, it's, it's interesting. I was probably, I mean, a, oh man, a very long time ago. I was only in eighth grade, but we visited uh, the, the National Mall and there was a thing, a tent set up for the, I was in the eighth grade about, so maybe like 12 or 13 years old. And I loved fish. I loved animals. And um, there was this huge tent set up on the National Mall and my family was going to the Smithsonian Air and Space. And I had just been there on a class trip like two months earlier. So I asked my parents, can I go to this animal tent? There was a couple of like college girls outside who were like, do you love animals? Do you like animals? And I was like, I love animals. And they were like, okay, come in here. And I was like, okay. And my mom said, so long, you can go. But she made them promise, just don't let him leave here until we come back. We're going to be in this museum for about an hour and a half. And they were like, we promise we will not let him leave. And I didn't know what P-E-T-A was. It was the people for the ethnical treatment of animals. And Gardner, they put me into a shock and awe, like slaughterhouses. They said, I was like, oh. like I left there so traumatized that from the, I was a vegan from like yeah. the age of 14, 15. And then I went back to fish. Um, and then, uh, and then ultimately I relapsed on a hot dog a few years later. <laughs> So <laughs> I went back. I went back to being um, an omnivore. I think they call her. So just eating pretty much everything. But I think movies, you know, they and like conspiracy or the, you know those kind of um, shock movies that can really make people like, holy, sh you know, really scare you. Um, I don't know. It's really tough when I see them doing that for seafood because ultimately, especially when you get into the realm of like what you're doing. I mean, when you get into oyster farming or regenerative restorative aquaculture um it's hard to beat that as from a sustainability perspective right and and so i feel like they just use a broad stroke brush in in seaspiracy and just kind of painted any food that comes out of the ocean as evil and bad and that's just not the you know that's not the reality of it and i think when they do that there's a lot of other effects but one of them is they push people back towards hamburgers 
you know, which is from a carbon footprint and all the things that they're trying to make make it sound like in their movie that, you know, they're that they're standing for, you know, climate and clean environment and stuff like that. Um, I don't know that they fully thought through a lot of the, the repercussions of, of the messaging in that film. Well, you know, it's really a shame. And I don't want to drag this out, but I do want to say, um, you know, they, they they not had, they still have a platform, you know, and they held everybody's attention. And of course it was trending and everything. So, I, you know, I just wish they had um, pushed a more positive note, um, you know, that could have maybe led to something else. I mean, you know, with recycling and, uh, you know, carbon footprint and you know all that good stuff uh but you know uh i don't know but let's get to mon talk man mon talk all right uh, cool cool bye uh so just tell us about you know your business and what, what what you got going on man yeah yeah so um it's interesting how this all began so we started a community sport fishery over 10 years ago and a big part of that as you know in the seafood world is especially in the mid-atlantic region where we are so um when you get into fish processing, there's a lot of waste. The, the average, you know, like the average yield for round fin fish in the, in the mid-Atlantic is around 40%. So what that means is if I have 100 pounds of, um, of black sea bass, for example, and I fillet out 100 pounds of whole fish, I end up with 40 pounds of fillet and 60 pounds of waste. So when you start to scale up and now we're dealing with thousand pounds and 2000 pounds, that waste really starts to, you're looking at the, you know, the dumpster in the parking lot outside the filet house. And you're like, man, that's a huge amount of just wasted fish. And it's a lot of things like, you know, still in the, in the waste, you'd have a lot of um, whether it was fish collars, cheeks, all the taco cuts in, in the, in the racks and things like that. But still, you know, it's very good seafood. Just yeah. um, Americans only want to eat fillets, right? And they don't like whole fish and they don't like, they really, Americans for the most part are not a very seafood centric culture. Um, and we don't have a very extravagant palate like they do in other parts of the world for seafood. So, um, so that turned the light on for us that like, how do we solve this waste seafood waste problem. So we started this project where we started bringing the fish waste to the local farms and turning it into um, composting it and turning it into a fertilizer for the local farms. And, it, and we really started to track and, and explore what would it look like if we started to create, you know, this is 2013 or 2014, um, where we started to create um, a secondary almost business of fish waste fertilizer. So that then led to two things happening at once. I was really tracking the local seafood kelp farming kind of industry, which was very fledgling in the U.S. at that time, especially on the East Coast. Um, and we also started having really bad nitrogen loading problems in eastern Long Island. So not so much Montauk because we have so much water flow from the ocean, but in a lot of the bays and estuaries, kind of like the Chesapeake, anywhere where you have an enclosed body of water, um, we started having these nitrogen runoff problems and it was killing like, you know, sea, like our, our bay scallops, the lobster all left, all the winter flounder, like all the bays and waterways started getting destroyed. So we started just connecting these dots. So how can we make, um, you know, like try to solve a, a few of these problems at once? And then the light turned on, you know, that what if we had these kelp farms, which act as like, nitrogen sinks basically the, the 
the kelp soaks up a lot of the nitrogen from the waterway. Mm-hmm. And then what if we can take that kelp out and convert it into fertilizer products and stop bringing in importing all this synthetic fertilizer from all over the place. Um, and so it was basically once again, like a gradual step-by-step thing that brought us to last year, 2020. And we decided like, let's go for it, man. We've got all the parts that we need here, all the pieces to the puzzle. Um, let's put together, we really just had to formalize it and launch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think now what we've, you know, it's always interesting when you start something brand new, uh, we have something we call the crab basket society, uh, in, in a lot of, in a lot of ways. So, you know, you know, from like main Avenue, if you have a basket of Maryland number twos and one of them starts crawling up over the side, the, the <laughs> other ones will, will reach up and hold on to them and pull them back down, you know? Right, so, right, right. um, and that's, that's to a degree we we kind of had a lot of people like, what do you guys think you're doing? Trying to make, you know, fertilizer out of seaweed. Um, we're in that phase right now. And we've been through this before where that crab basket society where people are like, um, you know, they're not quite sure what's going on or what's happening. So they'll try to naysay it often. But, but then we've got a huge waves of support from a lot of people who can, you know, see what we're trying to do and understand. Um, and I'm happy to report that like, we launched and now we're off and running and sailing. We've got a couple of good local kelp farmers who are, we're now helping them seed their upcoming um, uh, kelp farms for this upcoming season. Um, we have a couple of local wild um, kelp or seaweed harvesters, these old Bonnock families who you know go back 300 years. They do a very um, kind of regenerative pruning of, of, of wild seaweeds. Um, and now we're starting, this is super um, exciting for us. We're, we're starting to go back to our original blueprint and take waste stream things out of the commercial fishery and start to blend those together with the kelp meal to create these new blends of like, the, our first one is a, is a sea scallop shell, which is all calcium. Um, we're, we're learning how to pulverize and powder those and mix them with uh, the kelp meal, which is also kind of a ground and pulverized. And the results for the gardeners and the farmers and the wine, you know, the vintners and, and uh, the vineyards and even arborists and a lot of landscapers and stuff, we're finding all these different outlets for these products. And people are just like, whoa, man, this is our first summer where we gave out huge amounts of samples last spring as the, as the season began, like the gardening and, and farming season out here. And now, like in the last few weeks, we started to get all these pictures and videos coming back of the people who used our kelp meal fertilizer in their home gardens or um, to transplant trees, whatever they did. And all these like, it looks like, you know, Jurassic Park, man, just these huge, beautiful fruits and vegetables and plants. And people are just astonished by like 16 foot tall corn stalks and things that they're like, I've never had this amount of you know, grapes growing, the, the, it causes more branches, it causes deeper roots, like putting kelp, it turns out into your soil has like uh, some magical uh, effects. And so, yeah, man, it's like, it feels like going back in the day to when we first launched Community Sport Fisheries and we're like, whoa, this works. Right, right, right. You know, it's like, cool, cool. And this works. So you guys, um, I guess, have a host of kelp farmers 
that you get kelp from, and then you guys turn that kelp into fertilizer, and then folks come to you for the fertilizer, then they use that fertilizer, and they just grow some awesome crops, flowers, plants, whatever, whatever. Exactly. And so that really creates a closed loop system where like, cause the soil that they're putting the fertilizer into, inevitably the nitrogen and things start to leach into the soil. It gets into the water table and then gets back into the local waterways. So the, the whole magic of this system is that instead of us continuing to import these synthetic fertilizers from outside the area, flood the ground with those and then kill the water with them. The kelp farms are sucking that nitrogen up and then we're putting it back into the soil. It's leaching back into the water. The kelp farms are sucking it up. So it creates a closed loop. And that ultimately like, you know, we're working with a lot of good scientists here too and, and folks at the university, Stony Brook University, especially Cornell University. And they're all kind of saying like, this is not a, gonna solve all the problems but if we scale this idea up, it's gonna have a very serious beneficial impact on the nitrogen situation, which is our primary concern. And kind of a bonus of that is, is all this crazy cool growth that the gardeners and farmers are seeing that they're like, whoa, you know. What's even really cooler than all that is this is once again, just like an old time idea. Like if you go back in the history books, like all throughout Europe, Africa, all over the Caribbean, everywhere you go, people have been using kelp and seaweed fertilizers, you know, out, out in the Pacific Islands, everywhere we look, like, um, and you look in the deep history and you'll find like indigenous folks and, um, you know, they've all been, you see, they all knew that kelp and, and seaweeds were a very valuable source of food, medicine, and fertilizer as a way to make their crops um, you know, stronger and grow more fruit or whatever they're trying to grow. It's like one of those cool things. It's like what's old is new again. So uh, are you guys still part of the Safe Seaweed Coalition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We work with those guys. That's a good, uh, that's a good click. So cool to have like, you know, we work in a hyper local space, a very small community. Um, and then sometimes you can kind of get lost in there with your work and, and, and it's hard to, um, to have a good perspective on different things. And so the Safe Seaweed Coalition was put together by United Nations. We actually serve on their traceability task force. And it's the coolest thing because they bring people from all over the world. I think there's about 18 folks on our, on our um, task force alone and probably 15 different countries represented there. And so everyone brings their ideas, their experience and like shares, their, you know, shares what working and what's not working. And it just gives us such a good elevated perspective, um, you know, on the work that we're doing. And without that, you end up like, it's very easy to just kind of start running in circles. If you're not getting good information, sharing information, hearing success stories and failures from all over the world and, and kind of keeping up with that. Um, we're making some good friends on there too from all over the place. It's interesting, just like seafood, just like you and I, if we have a shared love for something, there's a cool kind of bond there where um, we're finding that with folks in the seaweed and, and kelp world too, that um, you know, not everybody loves kelp 
and seaweed or thinks it's interesting and fun to talk about or work with, but there is a small percentage of people who do. And when you connect and get together with those folks, it's kind of a cool little community of like, surprisingly, we have a lot of good laughs. I can imagine, especially like, you know, just, uh, I guess, culturally, you know, differences, you know, always bring up good laughs. Uh, question for you though. What's like, I guess when somebody just wanders in, like, or do people just, do they come looking for you? Or do you have those people like, oh, what is this? Why should I try? Like, what's always like a selling point um, to use your product? Yeah, it's interesting. So we do traditional um, kind of like, you know, we have a website and we do some social media advertising, but our experience in the past has been especially in this day and age when there's so much media flooding people and information and like their phones, just you're constantly being bombarded um, with information and a lot of things that are trying to be sold to you um, that, right. you know, it, it kind of really makes that space. It's a tricky space to, to break through to folks. So we've taken an approach which has worked for, for us in the past and we start very, very small. We start with our very close community, friends, family. We start pilot programs. We do a lot of like samples, a lot of feedback and kind of bring the whole community and get them involved. And like I was saying with the seafood situation, like there's heavy trust bonds built into those relationships with people that you know, people in your community, friends, family. So inevitably from there, it's almost like rings in a pond. It starts to, you know, word of mouth starts to spread. Like this is a good, these are good folks. This is a good product. And then that word of mouth, like for example, you or I might see a Twitter ad, a Facebook ad, a billboard on the side of the highway, an ad in the back of a magazine. And we may hear the same advertisement on the back of the radio, on a radio, right? Um, that's all telling us to do the same thing, go out and buy whatever it may be, right? The thing, um, but none of those are gonna have the impact on us as if you call me up and say, Sean, I found this incredibly cool thing and you should try it. I think you're gonna like it. This, the odds of me then trying that because you told me and I trust you and I know that's good information is like orders of magnitude. All those other, you know, the Twitter, the Facebook, the, the the magazine, the radio, the billboard, if you get all those things up together is not as powerful as you and I having a trusting relationship and you giving information to me and saying, try this, it's good. That's the holy grail right there. So that's where we focus all of our energies and efforts really is to connect with, you know, with our immediate community at first and make sure that, you know, you also got to make sure that this product is what you're saying it is and who's going to let you know that better than your friends and family right they're going to tell no, you that's straight true. that's very you know? true so they're not going to be holding back much yo not this at all garbage what are you doing <laughs> <Yes>. start over <laughs> exactly 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 and we have you know go through some of those they'll tell us like you need to improve this or i'd like to see this a little bit um and give you all these different ideas that ultimately is for us how you come to a really good product is you know it's it, sometimes i feel like it may appear as if there's only one or two people connected to uh it but the reality for us is that there is a big deep community of folks who are who are working on these things with us and 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 i think that's 
ultimately where our sales channels start to get built is from, is from that, those communities. Why should people be using kelp for uh, fertilizer? Such a good question. So there's a broader picture, which is that kelp is one of the great um, antidotes to climate change. Kelp farms sequester about five times more carbon from the atmosphere than land-based plants. So it's really important that we start farming kelp and pulling a lot of this carbon out of the atmosphere. As, as everybody knows, the climate is changing. That's being caused by um, too much carbon being put into the atmosphere. So we need to A, stop producing so much carbon, but B, also start capturing some of the carbon that's out there. So on a, on a global scale, um, carbon capture would be the number one reason why people want to start advocating and using kelp-based products. Um, but if you bring it home to, and that's, you know, all over the planet, uh, people are farming kelp and have been for, the U.S. is just really far behind in this space. Um, in Asia and other places of the world, uh, Norway, they've been farming kelp for, you know, 100 years or more, um, some places. And so now it's being recognized, though, as this great antidote to climate change, that kelp farming can really have a, a very serious impact on carbon capture and sequestering carbon. Um, but for the fertilizer piece, in order for the whole uh, kind of kelp business ec economic model, the business models uh, for, for kelp farmers to really be able to sustain themselves and flourish. Um, there's basically three Fs in, in, in the kelp world. It's that why you would farm kelp and grow it. Food, fertilizer, and fuel. And so um, we have now on the East Coast, a whole bunch of folks who are starting to, who are growing kelp uh, for food purposes. So like Atlantic Sea Farms in Maine, they just landed last year 850,000 pounds of, uh, of farms kelp, and they're estimated to grow in the next like doubling that and tripling that year over year. So they're growing kelp for food up in the deep, clean, cold waters of Maine. Um, but the situation as you move a little further south in New England into Connecticut and especially New York is that the kelp farmers don't really have a full market for their entire crop. So they end up back to that waste conversation. They end up with like 60% of their crop is good enough to sell for culinary grade for food, but then they have 40% of their crop that is really no value. They can't sell it into the, that food uh, category. And there currently is no farm kelp fertilizer category. So we're really kind of designing our program to come in and be that the purchaser of um, all that waste stream kelp, farm kelp that otherwise couldn't get used. And, and if you don't find a way to sell that other 30 or 40%, similarly, like back in this, the fish situation where we were figuring out all this waste from the fish, what do we do with it? It's the same story with, uh, with kelp farms. And so to answer your question, the reason why people should be using um, kelp fertilizer is because it's it's that's really we're going to support the kelp farmers and allow this whole kind of community of of kelp farmers up and down the coast to to survive and thrive and really have um, that bigger carbon capture impact that we need to start fighting back 
against climate change. So it's a small action, people just switching their fertilizer to a kelp-based fertilizer, but it actually has enormous impacts into the coastal economy and keeping these kelp farms going and growing, which we need them to. So I'm not sure if you heard my um, episode with Stonington Kelp Farm. Susie Flores, she's the best. Yeah, yeah. yeah. um, That was my first introduction to kelp and see, first of all, before I, I want you to answer, is there a difference between kelp and seaweed? But um, I just wanted to say, why I brought that up is, so they introduced me to sugar kelp. So I'm wondering like, is there a particular kelp that you use for fertilizer versus eating or does it matter or is it the same thing or? Yeah, yeah, great. So I think first of all, it's so interesting and no coincidences, but Susie uh, Flores and Stonington Kelp Company it, this past year brought us all of their waste stream kelp and that's how we'll be making our Regency product with Susie. So on our, on our labels, we have a QR code if you, access that QR code, it comes up Susie's story and you can trace it back, our products to Susie's farm. And that's exactly, yeah, yeah. So she's a rock star. She's fantastic, Susie. And um, I think there's around the globe in the range of about 10,000 different species of seaweed. So um, when we talk locally about farming kelp, we're only working with sugar kelp. Um, and so to answer your question, there are different, um, as far as like what's edible, what's, you know, what's delicious, what's poisonous, what makes better fertilizer, what makes better fuels. Um, there are all different categories. Uh, they typically do it by color, by the red seaweeds, the brown seaweeds, the green seaweeds. Um, and each of them have different kind of uh, attributes or things that would make them more beneficial for to be um, grown for a food or grown for fertilizer or grown for uh, fuel purposes. Um, So, but what we're working with here is sugar kelp and that's a native species that naturally grows along the East Coast. And that's a really important part of all this is that you don't wanna introduce any type of invasive species or things like that. Um, And then there's a whole host of reasons why like Sugar kelp grows in the winter time and then dies off when the water warms in the in the in the summer months. Mm-hmm. So it actually serves as like an alternate growing season for the oyster farmers and creates a dual season situation. So that's really important. But the the reality is, um, and we kind of get a little bit of you know really hardcore industry insiders. Um, right now there's a lot of the kelp space is is in the nonprofit world or the research academic research space on the east coast we're like Susie's a good example atlantic sea farms is another great example um we're the first in new york to actually begin a business to start a small business in the kelp space um and it's really nearly it's impossible as far as we know right now to be able to do that with just farmed kelp so we're, we're using a limited amount of wild harvest, but there are a number of folks, you know, we work really closely with seagrass specialists from Cornell University, the Department of Environmental Conservation. Like we've got a whole host of folks that we, we work with for years and supervise and advise on our, on our harvesting techniques. Um, but what we harvest wild is a species called Ascophyllum nodosum. And that's completely different than sugar kelp. If you ever look at sugar kelp, it's kind of a green, flowy, it's brown in the water, but it's green when you cook it. 
um, a green flowy type of, uh, of like frond. It's almost like a huge long leaf. Looks like a lasagna noodle. Right. But Asco found the dosum rockweed is what you would see more like attached to rocks. And it's got little, it's amazing how evolution works, man. It's got little bubbles in it that when the tide comes in, it, it raises them up. So they stand up and they can access sunlight better, but it makes for, you ever see the little, like, um, it's, it's kind of like where you'd always see seaweed look like the it's little fingers sticking up little knobby kind of air sacs in there. That's a, to, that's a totally separate species that um, is year round. That, that, is, that is available year round, unlike sugar kelp. And so there are dramatic differences in all of these. I think in the Long Island Sound region where we are, there's over 250 different species just in the Long Island Sound. Um, and we have not really explored any of these as far as like, you know, two, basically sugar kelp and ascophyllomidosum. And that's as far as we've gotten uh, so far. So it's almost like a botanical gardens of different species when you get underwater. And, you know, historically, myself and yourself, a lot of the seafood guys, we've only really thought of fish in the ocean uh, or shellfish in the ocean. This is going down to the next le level, like the bottom of that that's pyramid that you see in the ocean with the sharks at the top and you know the trophic scale all the way at the bottom is the is the greens and the vegetations and the seaweeds and it's just a whole unexplored world where i think in the next 10 20 50 years we have to start looking to ocean farmed uh veg vegetation like seaweeds and kelps to solve a lot of these earthly problems on on land that we've created no doubt it makes sense man Makes sense. Um, that's all I got for you, man. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna keep you, man. I, you cool, know. man. This is fun. I think we should do this more often. I love just catching up with you about seafood, shellfish, kelp, seaweed. I mean, uh, this is our jam. So you know, and uh, like I said, man, we're really impressed with your work. We we're cheering and applauding you. Ooh, I think. Thank, um, you, thank you. Yeah, just great work with. Uh, with Oyster Ninja, man, it's just got such good spirit and good vibes and like good energy. So you got big fans up here in New York, big, big uh, Oyster Ninja fans in Montauk. Thank you, man. It's all about the vibe, man. It's like even when I'm putting like the little reels together and so I'm like, what vibe does this give off? You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I appreciate you, man. And uh, I guess uh, any last words for the listeners and of course, you know, how they can get in contact with you uh, and anything else you want to add. That's it, man. We're just trying to get by with a little kelp from our friends. You're you're a pun man, so I know you'll like that one. And um, and get after some uh some oyster ninja catering. Any chance you get, man. I love uh we love the work you're doing. I love to see people supporting that. You can find us at montauxseaweed.com. We got a ton of interesting info on our website and on Instagram. Uh, but other than that, stay peaceful, stay safe, everybody, and uh, eat plenty of oysters. No doubt, no doubt.